Hello and welcome. My name is Nathan Boyette, the pastor of Outreach and Mission here at EP Annapolis. This morning we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Mark 11, where we're going to be reading about the triumphal entry and Jesus in the temple. Uh, Today is Palm Sunday, and it's the day when Christians traditionally celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, just a week before his death and resurrection. The account is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, and it is common in many churches to preach a sermon on this passage on Palm Sunday. However, today we are going to be focusing more on the events that come after Jesus' triumphal entry. Uh, Jesus and his disciples arrive outside of Jerusalem. Um, He's been traveling there for uh, the past few chapters, and Jesus instructs his followers to borrow a cult from some nearby people who he knows. And we're going to pick up the passage in verse 7, Mark 11, 7, and we're going to read down to verse 25. So please follow along with me. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because of all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that no matter what is going on in our lives and in our situations, you are in control, and you have given us your word to comfort, encourage, and strengthen us. We pray, Lord God, that now through this word, you might help us to trust in you more, to have faith in you, and to seek you in worship through every aspect of our lives. We give this word to you and pray that you might, that you might bless us through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The whole Bible bears truth to a wonderful, amazing truth that God wants to be with us. God, the creator of the universe, wants to be with the people he created. In Genesis, God created humanity and had a special relationship with them in the garden. 
After sin entered the world through humanity's rebellion, God clothed them and promised that he would one day crush the serpent's head and provide a solution to sin. From the calling of Abraham to the rescue of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and countless other examples, we see that God wants to be in a special covenant relationship with his people. And one of those most beautiful expressions of that desire for covenant relationship is the temple. As soon as God saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he instructed them to build a tabernacle, a giant tent where he would live amongst them. The tabernacle was God's living place in their camp as they traveled through the wilderness and began to settle in the promised land. Once they were settled and a kingdom was established, Solomon, David's son, built a temple for the Lord. Both the tabernacle and the temple was the place where sacrifices and worship were practiced before the Lord. You see, this place of sacrifice and worship was necessary because of God's people's sin. Sin cannot exist with a holy God. It is like oil and water, but even more extreme. They don't mix. But God himself desires to dwell with his people, to be in relationship with them. Despite their sin, God provides a means by which they could be restored to a right relationship with him. The sacrificial system performed in the tabernacle and the temple. As Christians, we know that this system is fulfilled in Christ. The reality of sin demands payment. That demand has existed since the time of Adam and Eve. It exists now, though we live on the other side of the salvation provided by Christ. We also need to be saved from our sins and reconciled to the Lord. In our passage today, we see how Jesus is not only the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, but he is also the fulfillment of the temple, of God's long-held desire to be with his people. In the triumphal entry, we see Jesus enter Jerusalem to an energetic crowd that is literally putting their clothes on the road for his cult to walk on. They are shouting praises to God as Jesus enters Jerusalem. The triumphal entry would have reminded the watching crowd and the readers of Mark about many Old Testament Messianic passages, such as Zechariah 9, which speaks of the Messianic king coming into Jerusalem on a cult. Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish religion. It was God's chosen city where the temple had existed off and on for hundreds of years. In Jesus' time, faithful Jews from all over the Mediterranean would make pilgrimages to the temple throughout the year for important feasts and festivals. The temple was the very center of Israel's faith. So it is no wonder that Jesus' triumphal entry culminates in his going to the temple. His procession is not merely to enter Jerusalem, but rather it's to arrive at the temple. But Mark's account is oddly anticlimactic. We read in verse 11, follow along with me, we read in verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Just one verse earlier, the crowd reaches a climactic fanfare, praising the Lord as Jesus enters Jerusalem. But as Jesus enters the temple, he is alone. The crowds vanish, there's no one there. He enters Jerusalem triumphantly, but the temple is underwhelmed. The crowds vanish. The priests don't even notice that Jesus is there. Jesus leaves for a nearby village for the night. In our passage today, we see that Mark portrays the triumphal entry in this way because he wants to emphasize that the temple was merely a foreshadowing of Jesus the Christ. So we're going to explore the big idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, so we should have faith in him which bears fruit. Again, Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, so we should have faith in him which bears fruit. And we're going to explore that through two main points, the barren temple and the true temple. First, the barren temple. 
Ever since early Christian interpretations of Mark, they noticed and understood that Mark used his sandwiches by which he would bracket one event with another. We saw this earlier in Mark uh, with the story of Jesus healing Jairus' daughter. The story of the healing of Jairus' daughter bracketed an inner story of the healing of the woman with a discharge of blood. Mark uses these sandwiches to emphasize a point that he's trying to teach. Here in Mark 11, we see another Mark and sandwich where Mark brackets the cleansing of the temple with the cursing of a, of a fig tree. In the fifth century, Victor of Antioch, a Christian interpreter of scripture, argued that this was an enacted parable. Jesus was showing through his actions an important truth about the kingdom of God. And so this enacted parable has two parts, a cursed barren fig tree and a barren temple. Let's look first at the cursed barren fig tree. After Jesus' triumphal entry, the next day we see him going from Bethany back to Jerusalem. As they are walking, they see a fig tree um, and a hungry Jesus goes over it to see if there's any fruit, but there's nothing but leaves. Mark's comment in verse 13 that it was not the season for figs can be confusing. Famous atheist philosopher Burton Russell even said that Jesus cursing the fig tree was vindictive and petty. However, though it was not the season for full, ripe figs, it was the season when a fig tree would have unripe figs that were beginning to grow and could be eaten. In fact, many scholars note that the best way to translate verse 13 is, it was of course not the season for figs, but it was for unripe figs. There's additional words there that we're not used to in English. The leafy green fig tree was deceptive. It looked like it should have some fruit, but the promise was empty. As a result, Jesus curses it, saying, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. The result, as we see in verse 20, is that the fig tree is withered away to its very roots. Jesus' curse has dramatic results in less than 24 hours. The language Mark uses here is purposefully recalling the language of the parable of the sower in Mark 4. Both wither and root were used to describe the seed that sprouted quickly but had no depth of soil and so withered away because it had no root. This withered fig tree is an object lesson for the disciples. It's an enacted parable to emphasize what happens in the middle, what happens when Jesus goes to the temple. So as we turn to the second part of our first point, a barren temple, we see that the middle portion of this Markan sandwich, we see in verse 15 that Jesus came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and then began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I want to give you an idea of how big the temple was during Jesus' time. This was a temple built by Herod the Great, the same Herod that appears in the early gospel accounts and kills many of the babies in Bethlehem. Herod the Great had built this third temple for Israel. See, Solomon, David's son, had built the first temple during the monarchy, and then they were exiled, Israel was exiled, and after the Babylonian exile, Zerubbabel, uh, a descendant of David, built a second temple. But this third temple, built by Herod, had four divisions, and it was immense. The first and largest division was the court of the Gentiles, and it was 35 acres big. It was, long, it was as long as five football fields and as wide as another three. This court of the Gentiles was surrounded by a portico, which was a a walkway that had a roof and columns. And the portico had rows of columns and each column took three people holding hands to circle it. This was an immense court. 
This outer court of the Gentiles was where Jesus cleansed the temple in verse 15. The other three divisions of the temple were in the center of the court of the Gentiles, in the middle. They were the court of the women, where Jewish women could worship, the court of Israel, where only circumcised Jewish males could go, and the holy of holies, the very center of the temple, where only priests could go. And separating these three inner courts from the outer court of the Gentiles was a wall. And on that wall was written a saying in three common languages, Arabic, Latin, and Greek. And this is what it said. It said, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. See, there was a stark division in the temple between those who belonged and those who did not. Those who were ethnically Jewish belonged and all others were excluded and in fact in danger of death if they tried to enter. The temple had this court of Gentiles where people who were not Jewish should come and be able to worship the Lord. But the court was filled with commerce, animals, and money changers. Jesus drove them out and would not allow anyone carrying anything to enter the temple. And we then read in verse 17 that Jesus taught them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is specifically citing Isaiah 56, 7. Isaiah 56 is a beautiful picture of how foreigners and eunuchs can join themselves to the Lord and come into his family and his people and freely worship God in his house through prayer and sacrifice. Isaiah 56, 7 reads, These, eunuchs and Gentiles, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house of prayer shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The court of the Gentiles was the only place in the temple where non-Jews could come and worship the Lord. By having commerce conducted there, the Jewish leaders were interrupting the possibility of other nations coming to worship the Lord. Everything Jesus was doing here was a direct opposite to the popular expectation at the time. The popular expectation by most Jews was that the Messiah was gonna come and he was gonna purge Jerusalem, the temple, and the surrounding area of all Gentiles. But Jesus says, no, I've come that all who join themselves to the Lord might worship in this house of prayer. The purpose of the temple throughout Israel's history was to be a place where God dwelled among his people. More than that, it was also meant to be a means by which the nations could come into relationship with God. Israel was always supposed to be a nation that drew the other nations in, that brought people of the surrounding nations into a life-giving, worship-filled relationship with their God. You see, when Solomon built the temple and there was a dedication ceremony, he prayed to the Lord in 1 Kings 8, and part of his prayer was focused on the foreigner, the Gentiles who would come, and he prayed like this. Likewise, when a foreigner who's not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. See, even when Solomon built the first temple, the intention was that all the nations would see God's great glory, what he was doing through Israel, and they would be attracted and drawn in and come to the temple and worship the Lord and become part of God's new people. 
God's intention with the temple was always to draw more and more nations to himself, into a relationship with himself. But in Jesus' time, the temple was failing its purpose. It was bearing no fruit. By cursing a barren, fruitless fig tree, Jesus was showing that the barren, fruitless nature of the temple. James Edwards, a scholar writing on Mark, notes that Mark intends readers to see in the fate of the unfruitful fig tree the judgment of God on the unfruitful temple. And that's the message that we saw throughout the Old Testament prophets as they again and again called the people of Israel back to their original mission of living as God's holy people and reaching the nations, of becoming a blessing to all the nations. We recently built a small garden at our house. My three kids are so, were so excited to plant seeds, and they're looking forward to the seeds growing and bearing fruit. We planted lettuce and onions, and we're going to plant carrots and cantaloupe and other things. Uh, once we planted the seeds, my kids wondered, how long is it going to take, Daddy, until the seeds grow up into vegetables and fruit? They wondered how long it's going to take till our garden bears fruit, and they're very concerned to take care of it and tend it. If they see birds in the garden, they get upset that the birds are stealing the seeds. And taking care of that garden is, is a relatively easy task for us. But being a farmer of a huge farm is an intensive occupation. And before modern technology, it was even more intensive. It was hard labor that had to be done. Plants that did not bear fruit, land that did not provide food if worked. These are wasted resources. And a farmer who puts all of his effort into that is not going to have food to eat or money for other needs. Farmer is not going to put effort into a fruit tree that merely looks pretty and is not bearing a fruit as it should. The tree will be cut down and replaced. The Lord is not unlike a farmer. He's not unlike my kids with our garden. The Lord himself is on a mission from the time of Adam and Eve even until now. He is seeking to rescue, save, redeem humanity from the sin that separates us from him. Part of that mission of God was the particular people of Israel and their particular institution, the temple and its accompanying worship and sacrifices. Israel and the temple were like a seed planted that was to bear fruit throughout all the world. Part of Jesus' mission while on earth was to show the Jewish people that they had lost track of God's mission and that though the earthly temple had served a purpose, it was no longer able to fulfill God's original purpose of providing salvation and restored relationship with God. But if the temple in Jerusalem during Jesus' time was barren and fruitless, then where could people go to be restored to a right relationship with God? Where could they go to worship the Lord? Where can we go now? And the answer is in our second point, the true temple. We live on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, so we know that the true temple is Jesus Christ. In him is the final dwelling of God among humanity. We know that in him we can be restored to a right relationship with God. He is the final sacrifice for our sins, the mediator that restores us to a right relationship with God for which we were created. Jesus' actions in the temple would have caused a great deal of turmoil, and it does. We can see that in verse 18, where the religious and commercial leadership, the chief priests and the scribes, they were seeking a way to destroy Jesus because they feared him. And we also see that the crowds were astonished at his teaching and actions in the temple. Jesus' actions in cleansing the temple were not merely a condemnation on the commercial activity going on. It was much more. He was performing a prophetic action which symbolized the dissolution of the temple and its practices. This is why Victor of Antioch called the entire fig tree 
cleansing of the temple account, and an acted parable. Jesus is showing by his actions a truth about the kingdom of God. Jesus was telling the watching world that the temple was no longer the locus of God's activity in the world. People no longer needed to come to the temple to meet God and worship him. Rather, they needed to come to him, to Jesus. The next day, after the cleansing of the temple, the disciples are walking back to Jerusalem again, and they saw the withered fig tree, so with, a tree so withered that even its roots are dead. And we read in verse 21 that Peter, upon seeing the fig tree, exclaims, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus' response seems like it almost comes out of left field. He says, have faith in God. He then goes on to encourage them about faith which prays and how whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. When Peter exclaims over the cursed fig tree, why does Jesus point him and the other disciples to faith in prayer? James Edwards, writing on Mark, notes that Mark's following the fig tree temple sandwich with a call to faith signifies that Jesus and not the temple is the object of faith. Jesus and not the temple is the object of faith. And he goes on to say that faith is the opposite of doubting in one's heart. Faith is also the opposite of fear. And here in Jesus' teaching, he references the disciples' doubts. And earlier we saw how the, uh, the chief priests and the scribes were afraid of Jesus. Fear and doubt caught, prevent us from having faith in Jesus, the true locus of God's activity now. As the disciples stood in awe of the withered fig tree, Jesus called them to faith in himself as the true locus of God's dealings in the world. He is now the true temple, the place where sacrifice, worship, and restoration can occur. Just a short time earlier, in Mark 10, 45, from last week's sermon, we read Jesus teaching that he, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came in order to die so as to give many people life. Jesus himself, in the course of his ministry, alluded to the fact that if they destroyed the temple of his body, he would rebuild it in three days. We know that the Old Testament sacrificial system performed in the temple was fulfilled in Jesus. We can read in Hebrews, the author of Hebrew talks about this quite often. In Hebrews 7, he writes, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He, Jesus, has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus has offered the once and for all final sacrifice. We see Jesus is the true temple and the true sacrificial system. Jesus is the final realization of that desire of our creator God to be in relationship with his people. Our sin separated us from God, but God the Father, through Jesus Christ the Son, has made it possible for us to dwell with him again. A modern marvel of agricultural is the case of Israel. Since 1900, the country has revolutionized the use of water in the area of the world that has shortages all the time that result in barren and desert land. The Middle, the Middle East is one of the driest regions in the world. But through an aggressive campaign to reuse over 80% of their water and a revolutionary micro-irrigation, Israel moved from merely 70,000 acre, 70, acres of irrigated farmland in 1948 to half a million acres today. The result is that while half of all Israel is desert, their farms provide more than enough food for the entire country. 
They have taken a barren land and made it into a fruitful farm. Each one of us was like a barren wasteland, without fruit. The Bible describes us as dead, in fact. But God in Christ Jesus has brought us to life. As we have faith in his salvation, as we trust in Jesus, we are given the Holy Spirit, which is like an irrigation system that brings life to our dead, barren hearts and begins to produce fruit, fruit of holiness, fruit of the Spirit, as we walk in daily repentance, daily faith with the Lord. As we turn to application and think how we can live differently in light of this truth that Jesus is the true temple and has restored us to relationship with God, we see that not only is Jesus the true temple, but now each of us individually through our union with him are temples of God's spirit. Paul in 1 Corinthians wrote off uh, much about this. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, he writes, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he writes, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are God's temple individually. Each one of us has God dwelling inside of us through the Holy Spirit. Further, as we reflect on this enacted parable, we should deeply reflect on whether we are bearing fruit. The point of the enacted parable was that we should have faith in the true temple, faith in Jesus, the true meeting of God with man in the person of Jesus Christ. We should turn to Jesus in faith and trust daily, actively, as individuals, are we bearing fruit in our daily lives? As we daily repent of our sins, have faith in the gospel, and turn to follow Jesus in loving God and loving others. We should see the fruit of the Spirit born in our lives. We alone cannot, of course, produce this fruit. It is a gift produced by the Holy Spirit in our lives. However, neither are we entirely inactive, doing nothing, just waiting for it to happen. We need to kill our sin, repent of it, turn away from it, and reject it. We need to seek God in prayer, asking for him to produce that fruit in us. Furthermore, as a church, are we bearing fruit? I do not merely mean new people coming to know the Lord through our ministry, but we as a church, are we growing in holiness? We should be growing in love of God and love of other people corporately. We need to break down the barriers, the walls that keep people from coming into our church and worshiping the Lord. The Jewish people in the temple, they had walls, barriers that kept people from coming to worship our God? Do we here at EP have barriers that are keeping people from knowing that life-giving, worship-filled relationship with the Lord that we want everybody to have? Are we like the temple during Jesus' time, which ignored its mission and purpose, excluding Gentiles and not providing space for them to worship the Lord? Third, and finally, as far as application, worship. The temple was a place of worship, a place where all the nations could come and worship the Lord. Now that we are saved and redeemed by the perfect finished sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are restored to what we were originally created for, a relationship of worship of our God. In Romans 12, Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's not merely that we have been saved to worship. We have been saved and restored to a place of worship, for which we were created. A.W. Tozer, an author from the mid-20th century, wrote this, why did Christ come? Why was he conceived? Why was he born? Why was he crucified? Why did he rise again? Why is he now at the right hand of the Father? The answer to all these questions is 
in order that he might make worshipers out of rebels, in order that he might restore us again to the place of worship we knew when we were first created. Let me read that again. In order that he might make worshipers out of rebels, in order that he might restore us again to the place of worship we knew when we were first created. The reality is that we are worshiping creatures. We were made to worship. We are called to worship our creator and our savior. If we do not, then we will worship other things. We will worship idols that we make in our own heart. We will worship money, success, sex, other things. What idols do we individually need to confess and repent and turn away from this week? Worship is not merely coming to church on Sunday and singing songs. Worship is so much more. Worship is our very lives as we live in communion with God. Worship is how we do our work. Worship is how we parent our children. Worship is the choices we make every day. It's going out and enjoying God's natural, beautiful creation in awe of his creativity and goodness. Furthermore, we need to worship in spirit and truth, just as Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well. We need to worship in spirit and truth. Is our worship more concerned with our own personal preferences? We should be able to worship in all styles and differences. We should be able to enjoy worship no matter what the style, as long as it is in spirit and truth. In conclusion, God created us to be in a relationship with himself, to exist in a relationship of worship. When the Lord saved and redeemed Israel, he graciously gave them the temple and its accompanying sacrifices and worship to restore them to the relationship he created humans for. But that temple and those sacrifices were only a shadow of the reality that has now come in Jesus Christ. He is the true place we meet with God, the place we are restored to a right relationship of worship. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to be with us. Thank you, Lord, that you came to restore us to a right relationship with God so that we no longer need to live in darkness, so we no longer need to live separated by sin from our creator. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, God made man, are the true temple and that we can be restored to a right relationship with you, restored to a relationship of faith, worship, prayer. Please help us to leave this morning more equipped, challenged, convicted, and comforted so that we might live our lives of worship in our daily interactions with all of those around us. Thank you for your word and please transform us through your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.